0: In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work fulfilling the father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people, It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. Well, I hope you have your uh, Bibles or your iPads or your phones open to uh, Luke chapter 22. Um, I've called the sermon today Betrayal and Troubles, so it's kind of a serious message. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. And actually, what we're going to study today, we're hours away from the death of Jesus on the cross. And just knowing that should cause you, as you read through chapter 22, at least the verses we're going to do as we go through it, should cause you to be quite amazed at all the things that are happening. In Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 47 and 48, we read these words. Every day, it says, Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is a shocking thing to think about. This is the religious leaders of Israel wanting to kill Jesus. And so now uh, we're coming to the point in, in uh, his life, in the life of the apostles especially, where they're going to go to the Passover. Just before Jesus is killed, this is where we're, uh, we're coming to. Uh, but you should know a little bit about the Passover. Most of you know a lot about it, but uh, just a, a quick overview. The Passover is in the book of Exodus, You read about it specifically in Exodus chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 16. There's other places, but those are the two places to see the specifics. But what happened was Moses is out in the wilderness, and he sees a burning bush, and he goes to the bush, and God is in the bush, and Moses is talking to God, and God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell the people, or tell Pharaoh to let the people go, because the Israelites were slaves at this time, to worship. And then you're to go to the uh, Jewish slaves, and you're to tell them that I've heard their cries, and I'm going to deliver them. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, and uh, he tells Pharaoh that God has sent him, and that, uh, that in fact, Pharaoh needs to let the people go. And he says no. Over and over again, uh, Moses God, through Moses, turns the water of the Nile into blood. It doesn't make any difference. Pharaoh says no. He sends frogs everywhere so there's more frogs that they can handle, and he still says no. Sends lice and flies, and the livestock are dying, and plague comes, and boils are on all the people, and hail comes down, and locusts come and eat up uh, the crops, and then darkness comes. It is so dark... Uh, that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Uh, but even with all these things that God did in Egypt to convince Pharaoh that his gods, every one of them represents one of his gods, that his gods are defenseless against the almighty God, against Yahweh. And he still says no. And finally, the final thing happens where he's told, Pharaoh is told by Moses, God sends them again, And he says, listen, here's what's going to happen. Every firstborn son in Egypt is going to die. Every firstborn animal is going to die all through the land, all through the land, if you don't let the people go. And then um, they go to the Jewish area and they say, here's what you're to do. Every firstborn in Egypt, every firstborn son is going to die. But what you do is you need to go and get a lamb, that's important, to get a lamb, and you're going to have a feast with the lamb, and you're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your house. There's a lot more to the Passover than that, but that's all we need to know for right this moment, and then when the death angel comes, the death angel will pass over every house that has the blood on the doorpost, and that's the Genesis, that's where the, the whole idea came of Passover, which is still today uh, celebrated in the Jewish community. Uh, here's normally what would happen, at least in Jesus' day while we're, that we're studying. Two days before the feast of the Passover, a Jewish family would go through the house with a candle and remove all the leaven, uh, the yeast, and they would leave a little bit for the children to find so they could teach the children about Passover. Then there'd be a sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed, and uh, the lamb would remind them of the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts in order to escape the visitation of the angel of death. They would have unleavened bread uh, to eat, reminding them of the swiftness of the redemption. They had to be ready to leave at any moment. There was no time to bake bread. At the meal, there would be a bowl of salt water, reminding them of the tears of their captivity. There would be some bitter herbs, Uh, of the, uh, reminding them of the bitterness of their slavery. And then there'd be a paste, or I probably can't pronounce it correctly, but a keroseth of the clay used to make bricks during their slavery. And at the end of the Passover meal, someone was designated, usually the youngest son, to ask a question. And the question would be, why is this night different from all other nights? And then the host of the meal would then retell the Exodus story. Now, in this case, Jesus was the host. And they all knew the story extremely well, but he would have reminded them of why they are celebrating the Passover. Now, look in your Bibles at verse 1 of chapter 22. It tells us this. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching... And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, I'm just going to add a word, it's obvious, were still looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Both Matthew and Mark make it very, very clear in their version of the story uh, that they were intending to kill Jesus, to murder him, in fact. And they were trying to find some way to do it for they were afraid of the people, so it had to be done secretly, secretly or at least far away from where the people are. Now, according to the historian Josephus, uh, there would have been upwards, he says, in his writings of three million Jews in Jerusalem at this time. Many dispute that and say there would only be hundreds of thousands of extra Jews. Many of you are going to Israel next year on our trip, and uh, if you could even imagine 100,000 more people uh, when you're down at the Temple Mount and all of that kind of thing. there It was crowded Totally to the hilt. And so, no wonder the priests and scribes worried that arresting Jesus at this particular time uh, would cause a riot. But then, this is very interesting. Verse three, it's not just interesting, it's horrible. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. The reason it says called Iscariot is there was another Judas that was a follower of Jesus that was well known but we want to make sure we have the right one here. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the 12. Now, you'll know that I called the sermon betrayal at first, and then troubles. Betrayal is a terrible thing. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he said, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Not one, But one of you, yeah, one of you is a, is a devil. It goes on to say that Jesus knew who that was. Uh, you remember when we studied way back in chapter 3 in Luke, the baptism of Jesus? Jesus uh, came on the scene. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very significant when you're thinking of Passover. Jesus came into the water. He was baptized. Dove comes down, the Holy Spirit, all of that type of thing. And then God says, this is my beloved son. And uh, then Jesus gets up and it says in in our Bibles that he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And so he goes in there and he is tempted by the devil. The devil throws out of context quotes from the Bible at Jesus. And Jesus throws uh, back to them, uh, winning the argument every time, uh, in context. Uh, Bible verse, a great reason to understand and know the Scriptures. It was a scriptural battle going on, a a, a spiritual war going on, and Jesus won that battle of the war. But then in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, when the devil had finished all this tempting, when he'd finished all this tempting, uh, he left Jesus until an opportune time. So this is that opportune time. He, he left Jesus. He, he, Satan knew he couldn't deceive or control Jesus, so instead he attacked Judas. But God was using Satan's scheme to fulfill his sovereign plan. And this isn't, so when we read verse 3 here, this isn't the only time that Satan was after Judas. He knew all about Judas before Judas was even chosen. He went after Judas. Judas was chosen by Jesus to be a a disciple uh, almost three years before this. And it's it's so hard to imagine that he could even do such a thing that he did. But then uh, now the battle is on. Verse 4. It tells us, and Judas went, secretly, of course, to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. It's even hard to read that if you really think about it. And verse 5 says they were delighted. They were delighted, these religious leaders, and agreed to give him money. He hadn't asked for money. He hadn't asked for money. There's all, people sometimes say, well, Judas thought he was going to make Jesus do this or do that and fulfill God's plan. No, no, he, this, was, this man was bad from the beginning. And it says in, that at that time they counted out the money, and it wasn't even very much money. And, and in verse 6, it just says that he consented, he agreed, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to these religious leaders when no crowd was present a good time to do it would be to hand Jesus over during the Passover meal. He'd be in an upper room someplace. They'd be just the disciples. That'd be a really good time to do it. Well, Judas's betrayal mirrors Ahithophel's, I even like to say the word, (laughs) Ahithophel's betrayal of King David in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the book of Zechariah and also in the Psalms, There are many word pictures of what Ahippothel did and how his suicide mirrors perfectly what Judas is doing here. If we are entered into the battle called Christianity, then we also will have an occasional ahippothel in our lives. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's true. Judas was the treasurer of the group and according to John's gospel, was stealing from the disciples' common purse. We read about it in John's gospel. In John chapter 12, uh, there's a picture of uh, Jesus probably in Bethany. He's uh, having a meal, all the disciples, all the apostles are there. And uh, it tells us in verse 3 that Mary took about a pint of pure nard and an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And then John editorializes by saying, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was greedy, and he had a desire for power. What a tragic life. It would have been better if he had never been born. His actions were inexcusable. Think of the betraying kiss in the garden. How terrible. In Mark chapter 14, the words of Jesus, Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's his self-designation, meaning the Messiah, the Son of Man will go. Jesus is saying, I will go just as it is written about me. But woe to that man who betrays me. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Wow. Wow. Well, verse 7, in your Bibles, then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This was the first day of the festival, Thursday the 14th of Nisan, according to their calendar. This was counted as one of the days of Passover, which then became eight days. Uh, Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. The day of Passover started at 6 p.m. one day until 6 p.m. the next day. Our days go from midnight to midnight. When you're looking at Bible timing, uh, their days went from sundown to sundown. For Jesus to be slain on the Passover day is very significant. He was slain as the lamb that would have God Passover, us, on the Day of Judgment. So, to keep the location of the Passover secret from Judas, it says in verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare it? Verse 10, as you enter the city, Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him to the house that he enters now water jars were carried by women thus a man carrying a water jar would be very noticeable and then say to the owner verse 11 of the house the teacher asks where is the guest room where I may eat the passover with my disciples obviously this had been prearranged verse 12 He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. So Peter and John would have followed the man to the house and prepared things while waiting for Jesus to bring the other disciples for the meal. This way, Judas would not know where they were eating the Passover and couldn't alert the Jewish leadership to arrest Jesus at this time. Verse 13, they left, Peter and John, and they found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, the Passover had to be eaten within the walls of the city. The preparations were extensive. Peter and John would have overseen the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple, seeing that the lamb was roasted while preparing the place and all the side dishes and the wine, everything uh, for the meal. And then in verse 14, it says, when the hour came. Now, let's stop there just for a minute because if you're reading through the Gospels, uh, this whole idea of sovereignty and uh, and plan of God is everywhere. Now, especially in the book of John, if you're studying the book of John, it's really worth studying it, just looking for every place that it says, uh, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come or his time had not yet come. And, and you as you look through it, you can see that everything that is happening is happening, in a sense, on time, exactly when it's supposed to happen. And so you see the God working out this plan in the smallest detail. And here, you, you just see, when the hour came, verse 14, at the exactly right time, Jesus... And his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, stop. Doesn't that kind of bother you? You you eagerly desire to eat this Passover? I mean, he knows that in hours he's going to be nailed to a cross, and terrible things will have already happened to him. And yet, is this the right thing? He eagerly desired it. How could anybody eagerly desire such a thing? Well, the book of Hebrews helps us know that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it reads this way, talking about Jesus. For the joy set before him, that's Jesus, he endured the cross. That's an understatement. Scorning its shame, he was naked on the cross, that was shameful in itself, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You can see the whole picture there, can't you? You can see the crucifixion, you can see the death, you can see the resurrection, you can see him ascending back into heaven, and he's back at the throne of God. So the question is what's the joy? Well, the answer is I am. You are. That's what. That's why he went to the cross. He went to save us for all of eternity. And he realized that however horrible all of this stuff he would have to go through, and he knew exactly what was going to happen, that the end of it literally was joy. Every time one person gets saved, the Bible says there's, there's just joy in heaven. The angels are rejoicing. Everybody's rejoicing. And then he says in verse 16 in our text, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, referring to the end-time banquet. Heaven is often referred to in the Bible as a great banquet, Thanksgiving plus, wonderful time. And so verse 17 says, After taking the cup, the cup of wine he's got, he gave thanks And he says, take this, he's passing the cup around, and to divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then verse 19, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, so the supper's over now. They've been there for a long time. It's just several hours of eating and everything. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood means his death, which is poured out for you. Now, covenants were ratified By the blood of sacrifice, the Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb had redeemed the people uh, from uh, Egyptian slavery. The Passover lamb, Jesus, redeems us from the slavery of sin and death. The old covenant was written on stone and explained by admonition to keep the law. The new covenant is written on our hearts with a message of grace and everlasting forgiveness. We can now leave behind the law as a form of salvation, but not as a picture of God's moral will. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong uh, to steal. It's uh, still wrong to murder and all of those things and all that it teaches, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. So here's the new covenant. We find it in more than one place in the Bible, but Jeremiah 31 is one of the best places of all. This was written hundreds of years before all of this is happening. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, it reads this way. God speaking through the prophet, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Jesus came at first, you remember, to the Jews. And with the people of Judah, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. They disobeyed, declares the Lord. Uh, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. And this applies to us too, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Do you see the difference? We've gone from religion to relationship, and then the best sentence of all. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, the early church had a communion service often, and we're to do the same today. Last week here, we had communion during uh, the worship by song. Pastor Reggie uh, read from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians these words. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church, that's us, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, we've just read it, haven't we? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That means death. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming again. He died, he rose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and he's coming again. But now, things get pretty serious. In the movie, the um, (laughs) music really changes. Verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Let's just look at the table for a minute. Here's the way it was set up it's, there's like a head table, and then down the sides, there's two side tables. The rest is open. It's not a table like you think in our dining room or something like that. They were on couches. They called them couches, uh, just like big throw things, and they were lying sort of on their side. But at the head table, we'll call it that, the head table, Jesus was right there in the middle. And on one side of him was John. And the other side of him was Judas. Amazing. Because that's where the most important people are to sit. It's amazing. When you think about forgiveness, when you think about how to treat people that treat you bad, wow, I mean, this is just incredible. But then on the side, there were designated seatings in a normal Passover. Certain people sat in certain places. Uh, The the one was more important than another. So it's important to know that that's that's where they are, and these disciples had been to many Passovers. And so uh, Jesus said, but the hand of him who is going to betray me, verse 21, uh, is with mine on the table. He's actually quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9 says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, is turned against me. That's the Psalm of King David. Hippothel. (laughs) Verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. So he's saying, I'm going to go as has been decreed. God God is in all of this. But woe to that man who betrays me. Now, it's kind of interesting because... Uh, what happened was the disciples started saying, "Is, it, is it not me, Lord? No, Lord, it's it's a me, Lord. It's not me, Lord. It's not me, Lord." Everybody said that except one person, Judas didn't say that. He said, it certainly couldn't be me, Rabbi." Oh, what a betrayal! God's sovereignty and man's will—people like, like to call it free will—is complementary. Complimentary. Uh, it's the more logical Greek thinking. That's the kind of thinking in the Western world that sees this truth as a contradiction. G.I. Packer wrote a book called Evangelism and the uh, Sovereignty of God. And if you read it, it's a wonderful book. You should read it. It's an easy book to read, short, short read. Uh, right from the beginning, you'll learn a new word. At least it was new to me the first time I read it. The word's antinomy. And this brilliant man, Packer, puts together in a way that's easy to understand, antinomy are two truths that are both absolutely true, but they seem to be incompatible, but they're not. And uh, I know that that's true because I read through the Bible and see it over and over again. And I say all that because Judas is responsible for the decisions he's making. We're responsible too. Actually, we can make wrong decisions. And if we're really a child of God, we'll be disciplined by God. And it tells us in Hebrews 12, I think it is, about the discipline of God. It says very clearly that nobody likes discipline when it's happening. But God's discipline is perfect and he'll put us back in line but because we'll choose to give in to his uh, discipline. In Acts chapter 1... Jesus has risen uh, from the dead. He's teaching the disciples. And at one point, uh, Peter and the other uh, main followers meet together with 120 people in a room. And the reason they're meeting together and praying together is because they're going to replace Judas. He's already committed suicide with somebody else. And uh, Peter says this at the beginning of that meeting. Brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David, King David, concerning Judas. Isn't that interesting? Who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. Judas served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Wow. You see, God is going to accomplish His purpose. God is not going to be kept from his purposes because of human frailty. Well, verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be, and I've already talked about that. Like, who would do this? And then verse 24, which is hard to believe, really, but it demonstrates our basic nature. Also, a dispute arose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest, the most important. Why is he sitting there? Why am I? I should be sitting over there. I did this. I did that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, you know what I think of every time I think about this? I think of our home fellowship. <laughs> Not the women. But with the men and the... We eat separately. The men eat outside. The women eat in the comfort inside. And uh, we, uh, we're out there talking about things. And we're just like these disciples. Yeah, I did this and this and this. Oh, yeah. Well, well I did this, this, and this. Oh, really? Well, I did this, this, and this. <laughs> Only this is a lot more serious. Verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them of which of them was considered to be the most important. Now, Jesus... I'm sure raising his voice, somewhat sternly said, the kings of the Gentiles, you could almost feel the frustration here, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors. Now rulers and others who doled out favors from the vantage point of power were called benefactors. The practice of benefaction was widely praised in Jesus' day. This is similar to our special interest groups and the political scheming that typifies our present society. But we, followers of Jesus, are to be opposite to this. We are not to be looking out for number one, which is the name of a book back in my atheist days that I practically worshiped. We are not to be positioning ourselves to maximize advantage. We are to be others-centered And to be a serving people, others and serving. Verse 26, Jesus. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. The young always honored the older. And the one who rules, like the one who serves. Now he asks a question with an obvious answer For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? What he's saying is, by that one sentence, I'm greater, I'm at the table. The one at the table is greater than the one who serves. But then he says, he he says that, is it not the one who is at the table? So in other words, they're arguing and he's saying, okay, I'm greater, as you would all agree. And then he says, but I'm among you as one who served. He had washed their feet after making himself like a slave to do so. Mark 10.45 tells us, for even the Son of Man, even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all of us, for many. And then he says to them, "They if you're at that table now, you aren't saying a word. I mean, and then he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials all of this time. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, <coughs> in heaven... They'll be partnering with Jesus himself as they are given the position of judges. I mean, talk about important. And then he says, now this is very important that you watch how this works in verse 31 and 32. So they're all real quiet right now, and he looks over at Simon. And in the underlying Greek language, the first word here in at least in my version, the NIV is not translated. If it was, it would be the English word, behold, or look at this, or pay attention. And so he's saying, okay, pay attention now. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. Now, he's not saying Satan has asked to sift you, Simon. It's plural. So here's what he's saying. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I prayed for you in particular, this is singular, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus used Peter's name, Simon, We could say that Jesus used his pre-Christian name as a warning that he was going to return to his old ways for a time. Sifting wheat was a familiar sight in that day. The farmer would throw harvested wheat into the air and the wind would separate the uh, heavier grain from the lighter chaff, and then the chaff was useless for consumption and it was burned. Peter's faith was going to be sifted like wheat. His true faith would remain and the false faith Would be gone. Jesus' prayer here was for faithfulness, continuing loyalty to Jesus. Jesus also did not pray that Peter would avoid the trials. If, If we could have our way, we would want to escape every trial. None of us like to go through trials and suffer, but they are what makes us like Christ character is built only through trials, through pain, and through suffering. I feel like I'm re-preaching the sermon Kevin uh, preached on Friday night, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday. It was all about this. It was just a tremendous message. If you weren't here, you should listen to it. It is in the trials that we find the presence of Jesus. And we all know the story in Daniel. Meshach, Shabdrach, and Abednego did not come out of the fire until they were called out of the fire. In the fire with Jesus is the best place to be. We see this in the book of Acts. It is through trials that we build confidence in the power of God to help us, to strengthen us. And then we are able to help others through the same trials. That's why Jesus said that Peter was to encourage the others. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 18, we read, since he himself, Jesus himself, has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we're being We could never say, but oh, you don't understand Jesus Listen, the worst things that could happen to us uh, You'd think, well, lots of people have suffered And had limbs broken and all that No, the worst thing would be to have the sin of the world Poured out on us What he suffered was unbelievable, unbearable Unimaginable And that's why we can trust him So Peter, of course, as normal, (laughs) verse 33, it must have just come right out of him. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. Well, that was not a false statement or false sentiment, by the way. Peter was a very brave man. He was fearless. Peter was the one who disregarded his own life and cut off the ear of Malchus in the garden when they tried to arrest Jesus but his fearlessness was going to be tested and he would fail and then recover and encourage the others. None of us are strong enough to defeat the work of Satan in our lives without dependence on the body of Christ, the church, the people of God through the Holy Spirit. Beware of self-confidence. After all, it was Paul who said, when I am weak, then I am strong because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. God allows failure in our lives, so we will learn not to depend on ourselves. So Jesus answered Peter, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. And then Jesus asked them, because things are getting tense. (laughs) Okay, when I sent you, on a, that missions trip, without purse, without a bag, without sandals, did you lack anything? Well, no, nothing. But now, if you have a purse, take it. You're going to need some money. If you also have a bag, take it. You'll need some extra uh, stuff. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. In other words, tough days are coming, and it's not going to be easy. And then he says, it is written. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Who's he? The Messiah. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. It's a divine must. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. If it was our, our day and we all had Bibles, he would have said, turn to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12. And uh, uh, 500 years ago it was written. And it reads this way about the Messiah. You all know it by heart pretty well. It reads, therefore I will give him, the Messiah, a portion among the great and he'll divide the spoils of the strong. It's actually the picture of a soldier who is in a battle and the battle is closing in and others want to leave the battle but the soldier stays in the battle and becomes a hero. That's the picture. So therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and divide the spoils of the strong because he poured out his life unto death because the person died and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was crucified between two transgressors, two of them. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for the other two on the crosses that deserved to be there, at least in that culture, and Jesus didn't. And he not only prayed for them, but he also said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he was talking about the ones who had driven the nails into his hands and his feet and done all these other terrible things. That's something to think about when somebody does us wrong. And then the last verse. The disciples said... Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said, that's enough. Or, I give up. (laughs) You see, they had misunderstood what Jesus had meant by the sword illustration. They all likely had a sword, as becomes apparent from uh, what happened when the soldiers tried to arrest Jesus. Wearing a sword was a common protection against robbers. They all had permits to carry. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you don't really understand, but you will and very soon. So here's a question. Do I understand what the Christian life is really all about? Am I looking for some easy life? Is salvation just an escape from hell and a way to become self-actualized or whatever that means so that life can be great? Or do I realize that salvation is an invitation to war? We are in a war, a spiritual war. We're in a war for the very souls of men and women. God wants to use us to bring many other people into the kingdom, but it won't be without trials, maybe injury, or without disappointment and hurt. But Jesus said, I'll be with you always. Jesus said, I'm praying for you. Jesus said, you'll spend eternity with me. Jesus said, recorded in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, I promise, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And one of my favorite sayings of Jesus, Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, we're the little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We've truly got something wonderful to look forward to. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who for the joy set before him went through the most horrible ordeal, not just physically, but when he took on all the sins of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of that statement, Father, and because of the resurrection, the ascension, and the Holy Spirit coming, we know that we'll never have to suffer eternally because of our sins that we're forgiven, and that we didn't deserve it, and it was all of grace. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that really doesn't know that yet, has never made that, taken that step of faith, I pray that right now they will, just in their own minds and hearts, just say, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to be captured by sin anymore. Please come into my life and free me from myself and give me eternal life. And if you pray that in any form at all, God will meet you and you'll know it. You'll know it. And then uh, you can take the next step and we can help you. Father, help all of us to realize that uh, we are on this earth to battle for the souls of men and women. And so give us the vision, the desire, and the joy of telling others about Jesus. It's His his name we pray.